0: Alright, welcome back. I know that was a little quick, maybe caught some of you short, but uh, hopefully you can get back in and have your seat and enjoy yourself and then also listen to the Word of God as we go through it together. Um, This morning, I'm thinking, you know, we're the first, this is the first first Sunday of the new year, and uh, this is a time when a lot of times people think about the past year and and then the new year and what's coming even last night we had a zoom call with some of my kids and we were talking about goals and ideas of what would happen in this new year what we anticipate what we would like to see happen and um, so in that spirit you know I, I thought I'd like to look at a passage here a couple of passages and maybe push you a little bit and I want you to know this isn't just pushing you this is pushing me too I uh, This is a tough passage. This uh, Not just this passage, this this idea. It's a tough idea to work through. It's hard, and uh, it pushes me and makes me feel uncomfortable. So we'll do this together. I want to talk. I put it up there from fan to disciple. And uh, taking that idea that we need to be pushing to be closer, to be more even, as Mitch prayed earlier, that we would make you the center of our life, our whole life, the most important thing. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. I know it is for me. I get distracted. I get off track. I get um, obsessed with things that are not as important. And uh, so I want to talk about that. And leading into that, I was thinking, um, I was watching the other day. I've watched it some, uh, watching some video clips of of um, the uh, uh the Women's National Basketball Association, the most valuable player is is a young lady named Asia Wilson. And um, she's a very dedicated um, student and player of basketball. She talked about how from when she was very young, she uh, worked on using both hands and layups. She worked on all these different things and and the impact her parents had on her. And and uh, she was saying the impact of their, their faith had a huge impact on her to deal with the ups and downs of being a college and then professional basketball player. And uh, she is a consummate professional. She is an outspoken Christian, and she is a very, very good basketball player. And sometimes watching her play, it was just awesome to see this athleticism that was fused with a tremendous drive that she has. And, you know, probably uh, for most of us, we would admire somebody like that, their athletic prowess, or, or maybe it's somebody who's, who is incredibly skilled musically. And we admire that uh, somebody who's in, who's very skilled artistically. We admire that, but there's something about just being an admirer. I talked, I wrote on the there that I want to go from being a fan to a disciple. There's more than just being an mi- admirer because you know, as as uh, as I saw a few times Asia Wilson play, I was thinking about this somewhere out there. There's a kid watching her, and and in that in that kid, it goes way beyond admiration. Somewhere somewhere out there, there's someone who who watches someone playing an instrument, and it moves past admiration. And and, and while she's watching her, maybe her heart is pounding, and her mind is racing. Maybe his heart is pounding, his mind is racing at watching this awesome athlete and thinking, what this person is doing, I could do that. The way she is playing, I can play like that. And then what happens is, is that kid devotes themselves to to learning, maybe to watching videos, to hitting the gym, to shooting foul shots by the thousands, to getting on a team. This person actually wants to become Asia Wilson, Stephen Curry, just, just these different, they want to become that. There's a kid out there who someday will be in the NBA, in the WNBA, Who decided? I don't want to just be a fan. I want to be a disciple, and they poured their life into it. They go all out for it. There's there's a kid out there that decided I want to be a world class musician, and they pour their life into it. I want to have. I want to develop my artistic talent to the furthest. They pour their life into it. They stop being an admirer, and they decide to become a, a disciple. Now, I want to tell you, I struggle with that. I'm not in that category. I mean, I applaud it, but I see people who who commit themselves to things like that for sports or the arts. But I'm not willing to make that huge change for those things. I haven't played basketball in a long time. I'm a fan, not a disciple. And that's a big difference. A fan is impressed, but a disciple is devoted. A fan applauds, but a disciple surrenders, surrenders their life. And I say this because all throughout the Word of God, this is brought out and and pushed and emphasized. We see it in so many different places. One place we see it is in the Sermon on the Mount, where there's two groups of people listening to Jesus, and He identifies them very particularly. One is just the crowd, the people that are listening. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, because He taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Uh, he had that, the Hebrew is shmihach, authority, that someone who speaks authoritatively. And Jesus did that because what he did was he acted as if the very words of Scripture were his words, that he's the one that spoke them. And so the crowd is amazed. But for some of them, it goes past that, past admiration. Maybe their hearts start pounding, their minds start racing. I remember as we were studying not so long ago, the book of John, and we're going to start back in that next week. We're studying the book of John, and one of the things I was talking about is that we were discussing the immensity of what we were learning, the awesomeness of what happened when, when Jesus came to earth. And, and that incredible, the, the awesomeness makes it impossible to ignore. It demands that we make a decision. It demands that we act. It's too huge to ignore too huge to ignore. And so Jesus, to try to try to push that sometimes, you, you see this when you read in your New Testament, every time Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, what is he doing? He's going to push people, his listeners, to move past just being hearers, and he's going to tell them, you've got to make a decision, because the immensity of this cannot be ignored. So he would say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he would describe this great treasure, this great treasure that would change your life forever. And so we can think of ways of saying it. You know, the, the kingdom of heaven, maybe to put it in Jesus' way, would be like a man shows up at your door, and you notice that he has a big envelope from the publisher's clearinghouse. And suddenly you think, I may have won a million dollars. It's life-altering. Now, you're going to go, I didn't want him to come by. I didn't ask him to visit me. I'm not going to the door. No. No. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is light, and he talks about a pearl that's a, of great price that's, that is a life-changing amount of money. He talks about these extravagant things, these outrageous things, because what is he trying to tell them? He's trying to teach them that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, when we talk about the salvation, the good news, we're talking about things that are so huge, they're so immense, they're so awesome, they are so life-changing that you throw everything at them to get them. You go, do go to any length, to get them. You will not ignore them. And our problem is we have reduced our salvation, the kingdom of heaven, uh, the the good news down to something that is very small and is just a part of our life. And Jesus was teaching concretely over and over and over. It's not a part of your life. It encompasses your whole life. It outweighs your whole life. It's greater than your very life. And so these people listening to Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, somewhere, some of them said, this is it. This is what I've been longing for my whole life, and I didn't even know I was longing for it. I couldn't name it, but I knew there was something. This is it. I can be cleansed. I can be forgiven of my sin. Everything that's evil in my life, I can know God. I can have a life beyond worry. I can have a life beyond fear. I don't have to be a slave to sexual desire or unhealthy habits or the need for more and more money. I can be a part of something that is far greater than than I am. I can be a part of God's plan, God's cause, God's revolution to cleanse, to redeem the whole world. I can have confidence beyond the grave. I do not have to be afraid of death anymore. And for some of those people, they said, I have to have this. I see the immensity of it. I see the possibility that this will totally change my life. This will wreck me in a good way. And so you have people who are thinking, I would rather have what this man has and give up everything else in this world than to have everything the world offers me and give up this man. And therefore I will pay any price. I don't care. I will do whatever he wants me to do. I will go wherever he wants me to go. I will give whatever he he says I ought to give. I will be whatever he says I should be. For some of those people, they said, today I'm leaving the crowd. I'm not just a fan (laughs) applauding this great teacher. You're a good teacher. You speak so well. As of today, I'm not just a fan. I'm a devoted follower. I'm his disciple. I'm going to go all in. Now, Jesus knew that his presence, his life, and his words would have an impact on people, but he knew that it would oftentimes be a few. And so he's constantly forcing people, pushing people to decide, will they move from admirer to follower, pushing them to do that, pushing them to the point that for some they turned away and they left because he asked too much. He's constantly forcing people To choose, We see a picture of this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So here we have Nicodemus, and he is an admirer. He's willing to admit, we know you're from God. We know God's with you. But he came by night. That's very key. Why? Well, it explains he's coming by night because he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. Why? Because he's beginning to realize what's at stake. He's beginning to realize what following Jesus means. And he knows in his life, it means this, he will lose all the status that he has worked his whole life to get, to reach the pinnacle of society, and he's going to have to give it up. He can see that coming. He will have to give everything for Jesus. Nicodemus, he saw what Joseph saw. He saw what Mary saw. My life will never be the same if I allow this man into my life. And he started as a secret fan. And what does Jesus do? If you read that passage, Jesus pins him. So he just nails him. He says, Nicodemus, You must be born again. You must become my follower. You must become my disciple. You must allow my spirit to remake you. You must publicly identify with me. You're going to have to give up what you want the most. And ultimately, he does. When Jesus dies, Nicodemus publicly claims his body, places it in the tomb. He goes from the night into the light. Not just a secret fan, he becomes a disciple. And there is a teaching that follows up on this, that illustrates this, that makes me very uncomfortable in the Word of God. In Luke 18, 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's like a fan. He, he's acknowledging you're a teacher. You, know, you, you have the answer to the question I'm asking. I give you that. But he's also trapped in the common Jewish thought that eternal life has a price that we have to pay. There's a price that we have to pay to get eternal life. He says, How am I going to do that? What must I do? And so Jesus, just like, you know, when he talks about the kingdom, he uses extravagant, outrageous ideas to show how huge this is. He says to this man, He says to him, okay, I'm going to give you something extravagant and outrageous because you don't seem to grasp that this will change your life forever. This is not something you just do. This is not some money you set aside. This is is not you making a, a, a promise to do a certain number of things over a certain period of time. This is not anything like that. So he says, sell everything you have. He's telling him, you shall have no other gods before me. And he tells him, and follow me. Obedience. Follow me. And this rich young ruler turned and walked away very sad. He was an admirer. But going all in, becoming a disciple, that would interfere with his life. That would interfere with his finances. And that's where he drew the line. And Jesus does this all the time with people. This is how he illustrates things. This is how he changes, charges people, this is how he challenges people. Are you going to follow me or are you just going to admire me? And see, the question here is not, does Jesus want everyone to sell everything? No, this was an act, ex- Jesus doing an extravagant, outrageous thing to show him where his priorities would have to lie. The question is this: will I give up everything if he asked me to? What will I give up? Well, more importantly, what will I not give up if he asks me to? Because we all have something that's hard to give up. See, the question is not, what do we do? The question is, who are we depending on? Who are we looking to? The key part in this is the idea of obedience, that we are trying to obey now, this is where we can get really uh, frustrated with this. We can, get, we can start feeling really guilty because, because I don't want people to listen to this and then start going, Maybe I'm not even a Christian. I'm just not that dedicated. I don't know what. No, the idea is, what is my, does my heart want to obey? Do I want to follow Jesus with my life? I know it's a struggle, and I know we mess up. But obedience is going to be the key in terms of showing where, which way we're going. Jesus has been teaching in, in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching about the blessed life, and he's saying anyone can have it. Anyone can have it. His question is, do you want it? Do you want it? And when he thinks people, he's, as he's teaching this, and he's seeing the people and the way they're reacting to him, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. It's the easy way. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only if you find it. What is this narrow way? Well, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Jesus says, it's me. I'm the narrow way. But it's not the popular way. It's not the easy way. It's not the coasting way. But he's saying, it's me. Love Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Abide. Work at abiding in Jesus. Work at following him and not holding back. The Broadway is the way of the crowd. It's the way of the fans. It's the way of people who have no skin in the game. And that's what people do in our world. They find the path of least resistance. Our, especially our culture is so, is so obsessed with comfort. I want it easy. I don't want to have to work too hard. I don't want to be in pain. And if I am in pain, it's somebody's fault. And whose fault is it? I can sue them. You know, we want comfort. It's easy to drift. It's easy to admire Jesus kind of from a distance, but reserve for yourself the right to do whatever you want to do when the chips are down, when push comes to shove. And so Jesus uses, as I talked about this, these series of pictures. He paints word pictures, talking about the kingdom, talking about what it is, the narrow way, the broad way. They all, they could picture these things in their mind, a very broad path with a huge gate and a very narrow path with a tight gate and how sometimes that gets crowded, becomes hard, becomes difficult. It's not the easy way. And he goes on in Matthew 7 and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he or she who does the will of my father and who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Because Jesus is saying, it's, I'm not looking at what you, at all these things you, 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 these things you can do. I'm looking at your heart. I want your heart to follow me. I do, I want obedience. This is the key to it. But it's obedience that comes from knowing him. There are those that know him, and there are those that don't know him. There's no other third way. And so he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount in a very familiar passage that we have talked about a number of times here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice, hearing and doing, he says, that's you're 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 giving yourself to me. You're allowing me to work in your life. And it's and it's beginning to work. You're hearer and a doer. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, that is, they ignore them. They push them away. They go the easy way. They go, oh, beautiful words, very good, and then they, off they go. It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, you know, I've I've talked about this before. This is not somebody building at the beach because a hurricane comes, because they didn't have hurricanes where Jesus is. But they did have flash floods, and they did have floods, and so they learned The low areas, the sandy areas, you don't build in those areas, not because you can't build a good house there, but because every so often, maybe once every 10 years, this area floods. You find the higher areas, the rock areas where the foundation is solid and the floods don't reach you. Now, we may think, what kind of an idiot would build a house? That seems so foolish. Well, it's the definition of it. It's a foolish man, a foolish woman. But what kind of idiot builds their house? where it floods. We still do that. There's a city called New Orleans that is a whole city built on a place that floods. The city of of Miami is having more and more. The city of Norfolk is having more and more flooding. And people are beginning to look at the fact that their houses are almost worth nothing anymore because of where they built them. So we still do it. We're just like them. And Jesus says, don't be the foolish man who builds in the place where destruction is a distinct possibility. Be the wise man. And what I love about this is the floods came oftentimes years apart. Sometimes it's 10 years, 15 years. And so for a while, the wise man and the foolish man, they're fine. They both look the same. They both have nice houses. But one is destined for destruction. It just hasn't happened yet. And they can go. And at the the eighth year, the ninth year, the tenth year, the foolish man's going, see, everybody told me to watch out. Ridiculous. I'm fine. Nothing has changed. Things are going the way they've always gone. But one day it happens. And he says it fell with a great crash. It's a complete crash destruction. And so Jesus says, be a hearer and a doer. James, Jesus' brother, I'm sure he heard the Sermon on the Mount. He heard that sermon many times, and he just writes parts of it right into his book in the book of James. In James chapter 1, he says, be, be uh, not just hearers only, but be doers of the word. And then he gives us the secret. He talks to us. He says, the, the word is like the mirror that always tells us the truth, always tells us the truth always tells us what really is true about us. And he says, that's the key. People who do what Jesus says and people who hear and know and seek to do what Jesus says. He he says, there's there's those who are trying to do what I say. There's those who are ignoring it. There's no third house. And so it all comes down to this. Are you going to pursue Jesus? Or are you not? Are you just going to be a fan from a distance, or are you going to become a disciple? Do you want to change? I've been thinking a lot about the fan category and what it looks like, because it's, I think it's widespread in our day. People that are in the fan cat category, somebody said, can say, do you believe in Jesus? And they're most likely to say, oh, oh yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, i got my way, in my way, my own way. Maybe they go to church maybe for years maybe they're volunteers maybe they give sometimes but they retain control of their lives if getting too close to jesus means they have to risk something maybe their success at work maybe maybe something that would mean it would change their lifestyle maybe being humbling themselves to get help with the difficulty they're experiencing. To go see someone, to go to therapy. To have someone else step in and try to help them with it. Maybe it would mean getting serious about immersing their mind in Scripture rather than just drifting along. Maybe it would mean not sleeping anymore with somebody they're not married to. Maybe it would mean getting help for their anger or some habit. But deep down in their soul, deep down somewhere, they want to say no. They want to say to God, hands off, this is mine. This is mine. I I can give you a lot. I'll try to serve you a lot, but this thing is mine. And so there's an admiration, but there's a distance. And if the distance gets too big, maybe they slip up. Maybe there's a big thing that happens. They start coming to church a little more. Maybe give a little more money. Maybe felt like the gap got too far, so they want to close it a little bit. But not all the way. And so in churches, possibly even in our church, we have people who can talk the talk. They can look good. But the issue that needs to be discussed, the issue that we need to deal with in all our hearts, that I need to deal with in my heart, is am I walking on the broad road or the narrow road? Which one's it going to be? Which do I choose? Where's my heart? And I, I said at the beginning, I struggle with this just like anyone else. I don't always have the answers. I can try to avoid hard things at times. I can worry about being liked. I can worry about um, things I say and, 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 and changes that I need to make. I can, I can want to sound wise sometimes when I'm not that wise. I have a natural tendency to want to make it all about me. That's the way I am. I don't think I'm alone in that. But what I want, and I think this is where Jesus looks at our heart, I want to be part of a community where the call to put Jesus first in our lives is proclaimed clearly, even if only a few people are willing to hear it. I don't want to be a part of a big crowd that drifts along and is happy and comfortable without ever being challenged to give full devotion. I don't want that. And so for you or for me, the big question is, am I a fan or am I a disciple? And I, I, think, I think something I, I, I thought about this, I came across this a while ago, and I thought it was a funny little illustration, but it's a fun illustration. And also it helps you learn a word that maybe you didn't know. Funambulist is the word that's on the screen. Funambulist means an acrobat who walks on a cable from a high, a great height. I mean, people that walk, you know, from the Empire State Building to the, some other building, high height. And, and there have been many people who have done it. You, we, there's documentaries about some people who have done it even recently on some buildings in New York and other places. But probably the greatest funambulist of all time was a Frenchman named Charles Blunda. He came over to the United States. He lived well over 150 years ago. This is in the 1800s. And he became fascinated one time because he was, he was, somebody took him on a trip, and he was shown Niagara Falls. And he said to his friend, I would like to walk across that. I would like to string a hemp rope all the way across. And so it took a few years, but he, he, he made arrangements. He got permission. He strung a rope. Uh, 11, 1100 feet across 160 feet above Niagara Falls he started advertising and of course this was you know money was involved and so they started selling tickets well the the response was astounding the first time he walked across 100,000 people paid and this is not in the time of modern transportation 100,000 people showed up at Niagara Falls to watch blonda walk across and he walked all the way over and he walked all the way back And people were crazy over this. It was was national news. It spread across the whole nation. He decided to do this for weeks because so many people wanted to come. And then he started thinking, I need to do something each time or every week. I need to do something a little different, a little more extravagant to keep people's attention. So on that first day, he just went across and he went slowly. It was the first time he'd done it, testing the winds, judging Step by step. I mean, you can imagine the drama of that moment. Life or death. No safety net. He had no rope attaching him just in case he fell. People were taking pictures. We still have some of those pictures. And so the next week, he took a camera, went halfway out, turned around, put the hood over his head, and took a picture of the people who were watching. Then another time, he went out and he took a chair. And he balanced on the chair and then stood on the chair while it balanced on the rope another time he took a small burner and a chair and a small table, sat in the middle, lit the burner, cooked an omelet, put it in a basket, lowered it to the maid of the mist boat waiting below, and one of the passengers got to eat their breakfast cooked on that rope. He carried something. He did all these different things. Finally, one time in the towards the end, he took a wheelbarrow across and then brought it back, and everybody was applauding. They were saying, this man walks the rope with authority, not like the teachers of the law. And then he announced to the crowd, those that nearby could hear him, he said, do you believe I could put a person in this wheelbarrow and walk over him back? And they were like, yes, yes. You know, blonda, blonda, they're cheering. He goes, I need a volunteer. Yeah, yeah. It got dead quiet. Nobody would volunteer. This was a step they weren't willing to take. And finally, his manager said, well, we got it. He said he'd do it. I got to do it. So his manager, Harry Colcord, hopped in the wheelbarrow and, and Blonda took him over and it took him back. Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone's amazed. But Jesus is not interested in amazing the crowd. Jesus didn't go up to people and say, like me on Facebook. Become my fan. Here's my Twitter handle. He didn't. He didn't say that. Oh, I forgot. I have a picture. There. Okay, that's the picture of him as he walked across. Somehow the pictures of him carrying the person have been lost, but there's a lot of drawings of it. So Jesus said, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, Jesus isn't just interested in amazing the crowd with his ability to speak or or his ability to speak with authority. Jesus wanted people to follow him. He wanted them to get in the wheelbarrow. He said, I want you to follow me. Why? Here's why. Because if if you become my disciple, this is what you'll have to do. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow me. But here's the thing. If you are chasing life, whatever you think life is, he says, you'll never get it. But if you follow me, you will end up getting life. The life you were meant to live. The life on this earth and into eternity that God made you for. And he says, so you can spend your whole life chasing what you want, and at the end of your life, you'll be disappointed. Oh, you'll get little glimpses. You'll get brief moments of, of, of joy and fun and happiness, but in the end, it won't quite satisfy. It won't quite do it. And so it becomes a question for us, do I believe? Do I believe and will, am I willing to follow? Because this is the most momentous decision that we can make. We may not sense it that way. As a person who does not know the Lord, this is the most momentous decision you can make. If you're a person who does know the Lord, rededicating, refocusing is the most momentous thing you can do right now. Because what goes in that wheel... My sin goes in that wheelbarrow. My guilt goes there. And I know... I know there'll be some that will say, well, I've got some stuff. Oh, man, I've got some guilt. I've got some doubt. I'm not a spiritual giant. I'm not spiritual enough to be a disciple like you're talking about. I I want to, but I keep screwing it up. And the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Your sin problem is much, much worse than you thought it was. You thought thou shall not murder means that as long as you avoided homicide, you're okay with God on that one. And the truth is, it's your heart that's all messed up. It's a cauldron of anger and vengeance that leaks out of you and messes up your life. You thought that no adultery meant as long as you avoided the physical act with someone else's spouse, then you're okay. But the truth is, Jesus is teaching them, the truth is your heart is a cauldron of lust, of mismanaged, misguided desire that is out of control. You have a sin problem. It's like the Niagara Falls of sin. And you can't clean it up, but God can. And Jesus says, I'll take care of it. I will die on the cross. I will put your sins on my back. I will pay your debt so that the gap between you and God, the other side where life with God is such that you could never get over by your own good deeds, I will take you there. I will, if you confess your sins, if you repent, ask for forgiveness. Your slate will be white, clean, past, Present and future. But see, understand what that means. That means your time is not your time anymore. Your energy is not your energy anymore. Your resources, your money, your savings, your security, it's not yours. It belongs to Jesus. He's made you a caretaker, a steward. Your relationships and how you behave in them, it's not yours anymore. Your mind, your sexuality, your emotions, your allegiance, your language, your work, it's not yours anymore. Now, of course, I can't can't live that. I can't live Jesus' life, and he knows that. And so what he says is, ask me into your life, allow me into your life, become a disciple of mine, and I'll live it through you. I'll live it through you. I remember when GPSs first came out. Seems like forever ago. Uh, first time I rode in a car, I had a friend who had a GPS, and uh, it was it was in a British voice. It was kind of funny. It was in a British voice, and I asked him, and he says, "Well, because people always follow what British voices say. That British accent sounds so authoritative, so they do what they say." And then they made a, a woman's voice for the exact same reason. And so I was—he was driving, and and and. And when you, when you make a turn that's wrong for your GPS, your, G, your GPS doesn't say, hey, you idiot, you missed the turn. You know, you think I'm going to help you now? You rejected me. There's no way. Find your way home by yourself. But they don't. Originally, they used to say recalculating route, when safe to do so, execute a U-turn. And then I think they realized U-turns weren't the right idea, so now they take you away around the block or something like that. But that's what they used to f- say at first. When safe to do so, execute a U-turn. Now that's Grace. Right. As soon as you're ready to listen, as soon as you're ready to surrender, God says, I know the way home. Now execute a U-turn, which is repentance. And he says, I'll bring you home. That's grace. And that's what Jesus, Jesus has the wisdom to do that in our lives. He's the only one. We cannot do it on our own. He's the only one to bring about the possibility of forgiveness for your sin and for my sin. He's the only one that can give us any realistic hope of conquering death of life beyond the grave. And so he calls us to to devote ourselves to him, not as a good spiritual teacher to be admired from a distance. He presents himself as a master, as a Lord, as one to be followed and served and obeyed and worshiped. There's no other way. He's the way. And there's only two camps in all of humanity, those who follow him and those who don't. There's no third way. There's no third house. There's no third option. There'll be no nice, polite, respectable, successful, distanced people who admire him from afar but withhold their devotion. And so it's the first Sunday of the new year. This is a great time for us to take stock. It's a great time to do business with God. If you are a disciple, if you are trying to follow Jesus, are there areas where you're, you're holding back? You're withholding. You're saying, oh, no, not there. That's too close. That would hurt too much. What does it mean? What does it look like to say, God, I'm stepping. I'm not going to stop admiring. I'm going to start following. We confess sin. We search our heart for things that need to be changed. Even as David say, we say, Lord, search me and see if there's an unclean way. This is a good time. This is a good time to decide. And if you make that decision, let us know. We're still here. The phone still works. Computers still work. We still talk to people. We'd love to know. We'd love to help pray for you. We'd love to send you material if there's some things that you would like, you think would help you in your walk with Christ. We'd love to answer questions if you have questions. I can't promise. If you call me and ask a question, that I can answer it right then, but I will promise you this I will find the answer and you will know it. I will, I will tell you. We would love to do that for you. We'd love to be a part of that in your life as we all together work at trying to follow Jesus Christ, stumbling at times, falling at times, but knowing His grace, His mercy picks us up, dusts us off, and puts us on our way because He loves us. And we are grounded in that great love for Jesus Christ because he wants us to find life. He does not want us to settle for the cheap imitations that this world gives of life. He wants us to find real life, and it's only through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word We thank you that this is the word that changes lives and that we can be a part of that. Lord, help us to um, spend time sometimes, maybe this week, evaluating, thinking, praying, and giving things to you. Help us to spend time uh, making sure that we are trying to follow hard after you. In Jesus' name, amen.